Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today, I have special guest, Joy Beeland, a CMMC provisional assessor and CMMC provisional instructor who works with Edwards Performance Solutions as a senior cybersecurity consultant. Joy owned an MSP. For those of you who don't know what an MSP is, that is a managed services provider, also known as an IT services provider who provides IT services for end customers like various sizes of organizations. She did that for 21 years in LA, probably a tough market. And she has the CISM certification uh, certification, and also the Security Plus certification. Uh, those, uh, so CISM is uh, what Certified Information Systems Manager, is that right? Security Manager. Mm-hmm. Security Manager, right. Mm-hmm. So the person who knows who to call and who to get involved to take care of fixing the security things. <laughs> I like to look at it as the person who does well in obtaining stakeholder agreement on what the cybersecurity program is and should be. Well, that's true. But when poo hits the fan, you also have to know who to call to get involved to fix the poo. Yep. Right, boo. <laughs> okay. So today's show, we're going to talk about uh, compliance things. So Joy is a compliance expert in many, many ways. Uh, having run an MSP for uh, 21 years and then now being very kind of uh, up to the shoulders in all of the CMMC compliance aspects. Uh, didn't you actually, weren't you a contributor to a book or were you the uh, the sole author of the book? You, didn't you write a textbook on CMMC? Kind of in between. I led the team that authored the first ever CCP field guide, which is the certified CMMC professional. And it made it through the Department of Defense and ProCert approval process faster than any other curricula. It was 660 pages. So I both authored myself and just led the team of experts that we had all collaborating on that field guide. It was a great opportunity. Yeah, I mean, 660 pages, it definitely qualifies as a textbook. (laughs) Yes. And aren't you guys doing some training classes? We are. Yeah. yeah. So um, as part of the CMMC ecosystem, Edwards Performance Solutions is a licensed partner publisher, which means that we create the curricula for the official certification courses. And then as a licensed training provider, um, we teach those courses. So I teach a five-day boot camp. I have my army of provisional instructors that we call upon to help me teach because I don't believe anyone should ever sit through five days of training and listen to one person. I love having varied experience. And we try to bring in the industry leaders, uh, Jacob Horn, Amira Arman, Chris Silvers, some great uh, well-known names in the CMMC industry to help to teach our future pool of assessors and consultants what all of the foundational elements are for the CCP class. This is actually a pretty cool approach. I, I like that. Yeah, I'm sure it resonates very well with people. Uh, I mean, I've heard many, many times over the years that uh, conversations like this, where there's more than one person involved, are so much more instructive for people. They feel like they can really identify with one person or the other in the conversation. And, and that's so true, I think, in any sort of instruction, they can identify more with one person's style versus another. It gives them an opportunity, you know, because so many people have different learning styles. And there still is so much ambiguity about the implementation of all of these 110 controls in CMMC. So we actually have two instructors for every module. One is a primary 
and one is the backup, if you will. And both of them field questions from our students so that you get two different perspectives as you go through each of those modules. And it's super helpful to those who are trying to do the implementation themselves of you know, all of these and their internal infosec team and they're, they're tasked with making sure when an assessor walks in the door, they're 100% ready to go. Uh, the consultants are helping to get them ready. And a lot of times those are the MSPs who are tasked with making sure that their clients are going to be ready. And then it's also the starting point for the official assessor certification as well. So two perspectives throughout the whole 40 hours of it. I think that it makes it really well-rounded. It's more fair. I think that everybody benefits from it so much more when you have multiple voices of experts that you're learning from. Well, and it's two banks of experiential knowledge, exactly. which is so crucial. I think for me, one of the delineators that I use, or rather, you know, a smell test as to how good a security assessment is on something is if you have one expert look at it independently, and then another expert looks at it independently. And where those two merge, you can have pretty high certainty that those two experts, uh, you know, that whatever they're saying is correct, because if they both came to the same conclusion independently, <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty darn good. I experienced that's exactly what we're going for in our training. Yeah. yeah. I experienced that in July, I encountered uh, another Kaseya VSA hardening expert and uh, he and I shared notes about what it was that we thought was efficacious for hardening those. And it was just astonishing how much uh, consistency there was between our two approaches. So we felt pretty good, good. <laughs> about, our, about our security posture about that. Uh, yes. uh, so uh, the topic I wanted to talk about today with you and get your perspective on was uh, a continuation of some cybersecurity insurance, which is really, from my perspective, really a compliance question. There's many organizations out there that are in, I'm going to call them minimally regulated spaces where we know everyone is regulated to some degree, shape, size, or flavor, but unless there's active enforcement, then many of these organizations may feel that they're not really regulated. And I personally have experienced that in the last 12 months has been the first time that many of these organizations are for the first time ever actually having an enforcement action on them. And that enforcement action is really a matter of, do you want to be insurable or not? And that insurable question comes down to, the cybersecurity insurance companies have gotten their tails handed to them on a stick uh, with all of their uh, lax requirements, and they did a lot of underwriting in the past, and they didn't charge enough on the premiums. And so now they're you know, really taking a hard swing back and saying, okay, well, you have to have all of these things in place or you're just not insurable. And even if you are insurable, and even if you've done those things, your premium is still going to go up like 125%. <laughs> totally agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. You know? so, so this, and then here's the other, you know, the other thing that's even happening, Ben, in, in the, I'm going to call them less regulated states is 
they're saying if you're of a particular revenue threshold, you also have to have an incident response plan. So that's been the first time ever. Like Wisconsin, for example, says all organizations over 10 million in revenue must have an established, documented, implemented IRP by, I think it's November 2022. So the insurance company said, oh, well, we know that's coming. We're going to put it in your requirements now. So if your premium renewal is in March, for example, you got to have the IRP now. So forget what state of Wisconsin law says, you got to have it right now. And you're, I'm sure you're aware, uh, the NDAA 2021 legislation included enforcement components for SPF, DKIM, and DMARC. And uh, I had a lot of hot debates with some IT folks over this where they said, oh, you know, we're not a DOD contractor. We're not going to be, you know, having to be compliant with them. Like, no, no, you're not interpreting that correctly. The reality is that because DOD contractors are on G Suite, you know, they're on, uh, they're on Office 365, they're on these things, that Microsoft and Google and all of the other hosting providers, they're going to have to change their regulations with their defaults with regards to recipient policies. And so if you would like your emails to still be deliverable, you're going to have to do something whether or not you're a DOD contractor. <laughs> and God, that whole- you know, It's such a simple thing. <laughs> I mean, well, who would ever complain about it? My God, what what is it? It took, what, 10 minutes for us to do that to all of our domains when I was an MSP. Well, in, in fairness, in fairness, um, most organizations that we have dealt with who are using marketing automation platforms have had a tremendous amount of misinformation provided to them by the marketing automation platform. Right. Okay. And uh, and the and so you know they don't actually give them the guidance. This is well, you know, you really need to put it on a subdomain. Like we've got a client who uses Salesforce. Well, so Salesforce emails are getting rejected because they're seen as spoofing. Well, of course it's spoofing, right? It needs to be on a subdomain. So I, I think the the one of the big problems that occurred was that a lot of IT departments were trying to do this on their own and they didn't have highly competent MSPs helping them. And, you know, to be blunt, there's a lot of MSPs out there that didn't have the technical chops to do it. Uh, funny thing is we have the Chamber of Commerce as a client. And the day after I gave a presentation to their board of directors about this whole topic, Another kind of sister or brother chamber of commerce in Wisconsin uh, got their tails handed to them on a stick with a breach and their email system. And I went out and just looked at publicly available information. It was very obvious that their email system was not set up securely. And I just, you know, I sent them an email and said, look, you know, if I can do this in 15 minutes, the hackers could too. The hackers could understand that your security posture was junk because you hadn't taken care of these things. And so the real question was who was taking care of their IT? You know, um, so, I mean, I agree with you that if you know what you're doing, it should have never been an objection, right? And it should have not been, we shouldn't have had to have legislation to, to take care of that, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, and there's still some debate, I think, in the community about, what do we do effectively as an MSP in terms of monitoring? It's only recently that some decent monitoring tools have come up for that. 
you know, it really enhanced monitoring. But anyway, so side topic of that is this was really the first year that I've seen in the last 12 months where there's been this incentive uh, for proactively taking care of a lot of these things that where the customer was willing to fund that. You know, we've been very successful doing security for clients over the years just because of doing it for them, not asking for approval. <laughs> but uh, you start getting into things that are very expensive and they're like, well, we don't want to pay for that. So the last 12 months really changed that a lot. So I'm still seeing these, these gaps in the compliance space. So this is where I wanted to get your take on it. So I'm going to introduce this into like a, I mean, first off, I'll say that I think if people just take a proactive approach to cybersecurity, they're probably not even going to get breached. I mean, they're just so dramatically reducing their risk profile if they're actually proactive. Historically, these non-regulated industries have not wanted to because it was expensive and there was no enforcement for them. But now their cybersecurity insurance is making them do some of these things. So the big gap that I see is this. They get these applications. It says you, you, know, you need to do these things. Many cases, it's a yes, no. And the questions are bad questions. Like, here's a great example of this. Do you have multi-factor authentication on the accounts that you use? Well, that would require an organization have an inventory, right? If they don't have an inventory of where they're authenticating to, what are they supposed to you know, validate against? Two, uh, what are their IS policies for onboarding people? Three, are they auditing multi-factor authentication? Do they have mechanisms to enforce that? Are they generating reports? Do they have an IS process that someone looks at those reports and goes and fixes those gaps on a weekly basis, right? So when, when the insurance company is asking, do you have multi-factor authentication? This isn't a yes, no question. It's really not. Because when the rubber meets the road, and here's the rub, when the rubber meets the road, you've had an issue. You call the insurance company. They say first, prove it. So you said to us on this insurance application that you had that. Well, prove it. Where's your attestation reports that show that pattern of due care and due diligence that you had that? Where are your IS policies and processes that show that you had official processes and these things were assigned to people to take care of, right? So that's the piece where what I'm seeing is claims are being denied because those organizations thought that the only thing they had to do was answer that question, when in reality, they needed to do all of these other things that you're very familiar with, right? Because it's just standard for compliance and attestation components. I, I think in many cases, you know, uh, the DOD compliance things actually requires that the people who run the systems are different from the people who verify the systems. Yeah. And, and so that whole piece is missing from those non-regulated or very lightly regulated organizations. And I think that's kind of the message that I've been trying to get out. And it still seems to be a, a bit difficult for many of these organizations to understand that, yes, you do have to push that accelerator down. You do have to get these reports out because if you can't prove that you had the systems and policies and practices in place that you said that you had for that technical control, it's whatever it is is going to be denied. You can't prove it. So comments. <laughs> well, that's a lot. Um, 
I'll tell you, first of all, from a, a values standpoint, I've been against the insurance industry just blanket covering cyber for the last seven, eight years, 100%, because in my mind, it's the same thing as letting people drive drunk or stoned out of their mind and saying, I don't care what kind of damage you do, as long as you pay me insurance, I'll go ahead and do the cleanup for you. It's outrageous. And it's a transfer of risk that did not serve the entire U.S. economy well. The entire, like, I almost think that they should be themselves take accountability for the role that they have played in allowing that transfer of risk that has not, um, that has put us exactly where we're at. And I, I could have told you, you know, six, seven years ago when I was having conversations with my clients about, yes, it's important to have cybersecurity insurance, but it's more important for the long run to make sure that you are protecting your golden, you know, the assets that you have and understanding what kind of data do you have? Who has access to it? What kind of risks could you tolerate, right? And, and have that risk profile created that's realistic. And so that's, that's just what I wanted to say starting off. I think it's criminal that the insurance companies have put us in this position in the first I place. think your, your metaphor is phenomenally good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so now that we're here and, and companies have spent over the last however many years, um, premiums have been doubling and tripling, and now they're to the point where, okay, we've paid so much money into the insurance company that had we actually invested that money in improving our cyber posture, right, we would be able to have those check marks on the insurance and the attestation in place, we'd be there already, and we right. would be the ones getting the better rates because we're doing it the right way, but that's where we're at, and so um, the insurance companies you know, they've been taking all of this money and it's been, despite the insurance companies, despite the progress that we've made on cybersecurity, this is the largest transfer of wealth in the United States history. So just from a national standpoint, me being as passionate as I am about our nation and protecting our nation, um, I, I am just sickened at the thought of how much money has left the United States because of these breaches. So my role with, um, Edwards Performance Solutions and in backing up the CMMC. The reason I'm so passionate about CMMC is that it is the only program that has a third party entity that can come in and verify the cybersecurity posture. Now there are SOC 2, there's some other things, but the 800-171, NIST 800-171 catalog of controls really is designed for self-attestation or for third party to come in. With the self-attestation, there are some guidelines around that that make sure that you're doing this with some boundaries on. So you have to generate the SSP. The SSP can't be, I want to use a cuss word, but I won't. It has to be realistic, right? And help, help as, make, I want to make sure everybody knows what an SSP is. So let's oh, de security plan. I'm sorry, okay. I get so caught up in the world of acronyms over here. Um, so the system security plan is basically the outline of your cybersecurity posture um, soup to nuts. And it starts off with what is the scope of what you consider to be valuable? How are you identifying what's valuable? How are you protecting what's valuable? And a lot of the things that you mentioned, like the MFA, um, are baked into the NIST 800-171 controls. It also has a level of maturity so that your documentation has to prove 
that you've identified. You can't just say, oh, I've identified who the important people are that can have access to this data. It's that it will show that the documentation itself, you have a policy in place, and then in the identification process, you have some kind of a process to generate that report. It also has you know, separation of duties. So wherever those logs are going, they are not managed by the same people that are collecting the logs, can't be the ones that are reviewing the logs. So there's a whole bunch of areas there that make sense. And it makes a lot of sense for me as a cybersecurity person, because there were so many small businesses that I supported as an MSP that you could take the 8171 lens and focus it in on them and say, this is something that we can achieve over time using a, a project, you know, a management plan so that we can find out what those gaps are and start to address them. Now, it does focus on privacy of data. The availability, for example, is not baked in. It doesn't, I think you probably know, they removed the recovery domain where it focuses on the backups, but a proper system security plan is going to be um, baked in the business continuity plan, the disaster recovery plan, the incident response plan. And as part of that, you're going to have recovery and availability baked in. So I'm going down a, a rabbit's hole to say that there are frameworks out there and there are ways that you can approach this that it not only would um, suffice that application for cybersecurity insurance, it would actually really greatly improve your posture. And the most important thing is that the business owner needs to have a true and accurate picture of what their risk is. And if you go through a process, a, a framework of some kind legitimately and have a third party sign off in it, as you were saying, then you actually know what your risks are. And it's good, prudent business sense. So uh, here's an interesting question for you is uh, first, before I ask you the question here, I, I will I will say that I 100 percent agree that it's absolutely possible for every SMB out there to get more cyber secure over time. It's like an elephant. They have to bite it one bite at a time. They need to just work on it every single month, you know, just keep financing the improvement of the effort and stop thinking about it in terms of something that you have to have some grand price tag that you figured out before you can even start. No, just do something. <laughs> just start working on it. You know, I, I would, I just tell clients, look, if you want to pre-authorize 10 hours a month or 20 hours a month, whatever that is, that's what we will set aside. You just figure out what you can finance and let us just continually work on it. And it absolutely hundred percent works. We've been doing that for 20 years as an approach and it works very well. Exactly. So um, question for you is the challenge that I have seen in the SMB space is a, uh, we need a viable and yet comprehensive risk uh, scoring system that integrates all the factors. And I have found that we really had to invent our own because I couldn't find a product that would do it and, and I also feel like there's a tremendous amount of variability that needs to be accommodated for. So, for example, I'm not comfortable going out and buying Rapid Fire Compliance Manager. I don't, I, first off, I think it's very expensive and it's outside of the price tag of what most SMBs can afford. 
uh, even simply having their own dedicated GRC is outside of the budget of most SMBs. So what we've done for our clients is we have our own GRC, basically, and we provision little chunks for them on there. And it's kind of like a little mini GRC. So I can give their insurance people access to that. If we have an incident, the incident responders can have access to that. The customers have access to that. And uh, and it's kind of like a read-only space. So it's very nice for that. Um, But we've had to get very creative about being able to deliver those kind of enterprise concepts into the SMB space. And and there's still, to my understanding, is no commercially available product that will ingest all of this data and create a comprehensive risk score. Because I feel like what the business decision maker really needs is red, green, and yellow, you know, scores, charts, and graphs in an ideal world they'd, it would kind of be something that worked like a FICO score that, you know, here's your total potential score you should be seeking to get to. And this month, you know, we're at 30%. Okay. If we do this project, can we get to 35%? If, if you're going to help these business decision makers along, it's like they need that scoring system. They need to see that when they spend, they invest, they get, a, they get a return. But the struggle that I have is I have yet to see a commercially available, financially viable tool with a low enough total cost of ownership that's available in the SMB space that can provide that. So have you found one? So I... Uh- you know, our company at Edwards, we work with, with a solution is called Future Feed. I love it. It is not, um, I have no idea what the pricing model is. It seems like it would be um, ideal for any organization that wants to do, because they have many different frameworks that you can use and apply it to. But I'm going to say this. There's a uh, organization in Canada that we're working with, and the Canadian government for free has an online GRC tool that guides small businesses through yes, no, how how are you um, being able to prove it kind of questions on different frameworks. And, you know, they're thinking of incorporating CMMC into theirs, for example, but it's free. The Canadian hmm. government does that, does that for free. And I'm sitting here thinking, there's got to be a day pretty soon here where CSA or another organization, another agency is going to be able to give some kind of a framework that makes sense for small businesses to walk through that for free. Ideally, that's what we would be where we would be heading. Well, the thing that I'd like to see is, and I've and I've toyed this idea, you know, MSPs already have agents on the computers. Those agents are reporting back into some sort of a system. And then each one of these diverse systems, whether it be a Qualys report, a Nessus report, um, customized things coming out of the RMM, maybe reports coming out of the BCDR system, all these things should be ingestible with automation into something. And then we ought to be able to create thresholds and scoring like um, read when when a new PDF file comes in via email into this report repository, look at the contents of that report, look for this data 
And that's indicating that that is, you know, a positive backup. Your backup was successful. Or uh, so what I'm saying is we need to have really high-end automation on this. And then some system needs to plug in via an API into that and look at it for risk scoring and bring back where the MSP can create their own thresholds and go to red, green, and yellow on all the things and, and end up with a creating that. There but are, it's all manual, but it's all manual right now that I've seen. No, there, there, there are vendors out there doing platforms. It's, I mean, what you're describing to me sounds like it's a SEM solution that's kind of on steroids and SEM for your listeners, um, security information events manager. So it can take logs basically, but you're, you're saying um, have an AI where it can actively or have an API where it can actively do AI on it to determine whether the um, information coming in, even if it's in a report format, can be ingested and have some kind of a score levied against it. And there are, there are organizations working on that. They contact us at Edwards to see if the solution they're building makes sense. So we give feedback on those kinds of things to see if it's um, going to be viable and what they might not be thinking about. So I've seen several of them. Um, and I think that, you know, the MSP market, like the, the amount of money pouring into the MSP market by the security vendors is unconscionable. <laughs> A lot of it from outside investors or, um, you know, it, but anyways, um, there, the amount of money pouring in is encouraging a lot of R&D for solutions like that. But, but it's, the challenge I have is that so many of them are taking what I would characterize as a disconnected approach. The, so the only thing that I've personally seen that I think is going to work is a tool like Cloud Radial, where Cloud Radial can be that hub that ingests all of the stuff. So now the question is, because Cloud Radial is your customer engagement portal. And it has the report repository functionality. You can run assessments in there. Uh, if they were to enhance their product, you might even be able to do better customized policy. And it's all automated once you put the functionality in there. Uh, it already has plugins for PSAs and RMMs if you wish to do so. Uh, but what's missing, What I mean, Cloud Radial needs some enhancements for sure. But it matches the paradigm. The other tool that I've seen that I think would do very well as an API plugin into Cloud Radial would be Synomi. So that's uh, C-Y-O, or no, I'm sorry, C-Y-N-O-M-I.com, Synomi.com. And uh, David Pramore is the guy who runs that. And they've got a really excellent paradigm for that. It, to me though, you if we're going to have a low total cost of ownership for all of this stuff, which is what the SMB market requires. We have to be able to, as an MSP, spend our time tuning those thresholds and tuning the scoring and the evaluations are fully automated. So, you know, yes, we're going to configure things to send into cloud radial, but then we need something outside like Synomi to reach in with an API and look at that data and bring it back into Synomi and evaluate it and we tune it here and that, and then we need to be able to publish the Synomi scoring, you know, charts, you know, chart scores, charts and graphs, red, green, and yellow and scoring and that back into cloud radial 
as the customer engagement portal so that you can continually have one interface that you're interfacing with your clientele over. Because, you know, paradigms from my perspective, like CIO toolbox or CISO toolbox uh, or, uh, you know, many other things that are like that, it requires you to sit there and every month turn the dials and futz with it. So first off, it's a tremendous, I mean, you're paying four to $600 a month for some little tool that you then have to throw a bunch of manual labor and effort into it. And the problem with that is that the vast majority of MSPs that is not even financially viable for because um, they don't, they can't throw that kind of manpower at a manually tunable tool like that. Now they're saying, well, it's getting them sales. It's helping them have their customers make better business decisions. But I'm, I'm saying that the paradigm of you having to manually collate data on a monthly basis and stick it into a platform and then tune the scores, charts, and graphs, it's a paradigm that has a too, too high of a total cost of ownership. And I also just, I think it's too prone to error as well because it's a manual process. So that's why I've been really looking forward to a tool like Cloud Radial being the hub, but then we need an evaluator tool to plug into it on an, on an API. And I haven't seen, I mean, this concept that says, we'll just throw another agent on the endpoints is bunk. You can't just keep throwing agents on endpoints and you can't keep managing all of these different diverse platforms. And fundamentally, if whatever your scores, charts and graphs are is not inside of a customer engagement portal that has a plethora of other functionality for you, that is your your portal, the one portal that you send your clients to, then it's just some other disparate system. And that's why I'm struggling with the paradigm that a lot of these companies have. I hear you. I'll tell you, anytime that you're talking about one API or one solution that's going to gather and, and, and plug into every single thing that's on your network, it makes me nervous. Well, I, but, I know but that it answers a lot of, of the. But, um, but I'm not saying that. That's, see, you, you know, you're, you've brought up a very interesting distinction. And, and, and I want to articulate on this because I am absolutely, absolutely, absolutely against stuff that's plugging into your RMM, stuff that's plugging into things that are on your network and stuff, because that is now an external breach vector. Okay. That's right. why the paradigm I go with is, no, no, I'm going to take my systems and I'm going to have them output data into a report repository unique per item. So now I'm, I'm meeting my attestation requirements. I'm establishing the due care and due diligence. Now, this is a, a space that is outside of the control plane. If I publish right. that into cloud radial, it is completely outside of the control plane of any of those systems. Now, all that I actually need is a system like Sinomi to go look at that data and say, ah, oh, yeah, these are, these are what is in your reports. So now I'm going to use some AI to evaluate that report against the scoring criteria. So um, I'm totally against a paradigm that says, for example, let's take Sinomi and shove it on all the systems. It's the same reason I'm totally against something like take compliance manager and shove it on all the systems because it's, again, it's just another stupid agent that you have to maintain and all of that. And it's all this disconnected stuff. I don't want anything in the control plane. In fact, I told David Primor at Sinomi at one point in time, I said, look, if you have a paradigm 
that is one where your system is going to be coming into the control plane of systems, now you're talking about a, a risk security vector that really frankly shouldn't exist, which is, you know, I've been 100% against anything that plugs in via an API into the RMMs. I mean, it's been a breach vector known over and over and over. That, that clarification helps. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so again, do you know of any tools that are this awesome? <laughs> yeah, I, I know that we are um, definitely watching the development of some that sound like they are going to meet your criteria. I'm excited to say that. I'm, I'm not going to give names. Okay. Um, I, and even, you know, I just don't endorse individual tools normally as part of what I do because I'm out there in the assessor community and it's important for me to be vendor agnostic. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm paradigm. I, I'm stuck on a particular paradigm and that paradigm is something that has to be a viable human capital investment and a viable level of functionality. It can't be, oh, well, we're going to inject more things into the control plane. I remember I've evaluated things that were like, um, you know, network security analysis tools. And they're like, well, you know, you have to uh, give us like SNMP access or admin access into your network equipment. And I'm like, right after hell freezes over, are you getting that, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, but, but we can pick up this alert. And then based upon this alert, we can reach into your WatchGuard firebox and make this modification. I'm like, right after hell freezes over, do I want your software to do that? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like, they just don't get it, that that's not a good idea. It's like, to me, cloud managed switches, not a good idea. <laughs> um, last time I checked for CMMC, you couldn't have cloud managed switches. Is that still the case? Cloud managed switches. I don't know that there's a, a control against cloud managed switches. I thought it had to do with the control plane for the switching infrastructure did not allow uh, you know, remote remote management um, from uh, individuals that were outside of the, you know, the normal uh, personnel who were taking care of that. And that is a risk factor, I think, of those cloud managed systems is, is if you take a switch and you say this is a cloud managed switch, well, now technically the, the hosting provider who's managing the controller for those switches, uh, you know, they conceivably have uh, an attack vector into it. And, th and that's happened, right? It wasn't it, I don't, was it Meraki? Was it Meraki that had that? I mean, don't quote me on that, but I think there was a, I think there was a switch in a wireless infrastructure that had a breach in their, their cloud controller that was the breach vector for a bunch of networks. I don't remember all the details on it, but I, I mean, I personally would be much happier with just, you know, if I'm going to manage a switch, I've got to SSH directly to its interface. That's, that is one of the controls is making sure that you have the secure authentication and, and management interface for it. Um, as long as the, it, it depends also what data is flowing through it. You know, it could be that um, if, if CUI is going through it, you want to make sure it's FIPS 140 compliant, not compliant, mm -hmm. validated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Validated, big difference. Um, and so, but the technical controls part of it for me is um, there are so many different network scenarios that these apply to. 
And I don't know if you saw the publication that we put out with uh, 12 different scenarios for different types of infrastructures and whether or not there's an MSP or an external service provider involved and whether it's all on-prem or it's hybrid and you know the bookkeeper even for all of the remote workers with all these different scenarios and based on what we know for the scoping guidance on NIST 800-171, what questions are left unanswered and what are the assumptions that we're making as assessors? It's a fantastic, it's like 52 pages. It's a, a decent, easy read. For someone like you, you'd probably get through it in an hour. Um, and you know, I'll get you the link to it, but um, really there's just so much about the environment and the boundaries as far as what kind of, you know, network devices or switching tools could you use? Well, I think that's a prime example of, you can get to the right answer if you ask the right questions. Yes, exactly. And, and that's one of the things we do in our class is, you know, it's um, because we have uh, out of the 110 controls, there's so many considerations. And with each of those controls, the assessment objectives, the individual assessment objectives, you could have from one to I think like 11 assessment objectives per control. So things that you have to be able to prove to an assessor that you can validate in one way or another, right? And so um, for each of those, there's different ways that you might be able to provide the objective evidence to an assessor. And is that going to be a report? Is it going to be interviewing somebody that actually does that as uh, their role and responsibility? Is it going to be a, a, you know, a Gemba where you're just walking by and you're going to observe somebody doing something? There's, it's like really What, what was that acronym again? Was that Gimba? Gamba Walk. What, what is that like? It's a, it's a term that is uh, was fairly new to me because it's not a part of the assessment that I normally do. Let me see. What, what does a gamble walk stand for? Normal, um, let me see if I can give you the... Generally around managing by walking around? Well, basically, yeah. <laughs> and it's not even coming up now. So I might even have said the, long, the wrong word, but... It's, it's a way of doing an assessment where you basically are um, browsing through an area that like is supposed to be secure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're going to watch and see, number one, are, is somebody going to stop you because you don't have a visitor's badge and you're right. not accompanied by somebody in the, in the um, you know, environment? Were you able to, to just walk in or did you have to have a code to get into the door? Like there's a whole yeah. bunch of different ways that basically walking through the environment would be able to tell whether or not things are, the processes are actually being followed. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably an enhanced flavor of management by walking around. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's assessed by walking around or something like that. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I know you have another uh, hot appointment to get to because you're highly in demand. So thank you very much for taking the time for this uh, podcast in our series of compliance it's always valuable to get the perspectives of experts like yourself. And I appreciated hearing about uh, what you guys are doing uh, at your organization with regards to the training and how training works and you know how that's integrating into improving really the overall security posture and uh, readiness of all the CMMC uh, organizations out there. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah, do you want to you. You give us a a last final wrap-up word of sage wisdom? 
know what the crown jewels are. If you don't know what you have, you can't protect it. That's the biggest thing that I just keep trying to reinforce for small businesses, especially. They think that what they have isn't so valuable, but what is the value if you no longer have it? I I did. A, I had a conversation with one of my clients who just really thought they didn't need cybersecurity insurance and really didn't think that anything that they had was that important. And I slept on it one night and I woke up at like 2 a.m. And I'm like, you know what? I think I finally figured out how to get how to connect with this guy. And what I realized is that the thing that is super, super valuable to him is his time. He doesn't have any more time. He works 100 hours a week as a business owner and he doesn't have any more time. And so if we do cybersecurity for nothing other than to not have an incident that's unplanned, uncontrolled, it's always inconvenient, always with a financial you know, profile that you can't control because you didn't plan it because the bad guys took control of driving your bus. That in itself to me is exactly the reason why everyone should be taking a proactive approach because they just don't have that time. I mean, anybody who's got a business has no time to light on fire. I mean, I don't know anybody who's lighting, lighting their time on fire. You know, They don't Agreed. have the time for it. So, um, uh, so you can quote me on that one and you can use that. And I actually did a podcast on that. That is one of the podcasts published out there on qpcsecurity.podbean.com. I think it's called uh, the number one reason why you can't afford to have a security breach. I think that's the title of it. So uh, send that one around for those people who you can't convince. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, the crown jewels. All right. Thanks so much, Joy, for your time. Really appreciate oh, having you. you on. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.